Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're talking about what we eat for this episode with Penn Vogler, the acclaimed food historian and author of recent book Stuffed, a history of good food and hard times in Britain. As many of us gather around tables to share a few festive meals at this time of year, it's a timely look at what the food on our plate says about us and how that menu has evolved over time. Joining Penn in conversation on this episode is Alice Thompson, columnist and interviewer at the Times newspaper. Did you know if you're a member of Intelligence Squared, you can get a special extension version of Penn and Alice's discussion. Head to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and you'll get an extra helping of food chat plus some very hefty extra content, including our new global affairs series, Saudi Project, a recent podcast all about AI, Power Trip, ad-free listening and updates on our live events too, or just hit subscribe on Apple for the audio. Now let's join Alice Thompson speaking to Penn Vogler about her book Stuffed Penn Vogler, who's the phenomenal food historian and author of Stuffed, a history of good food and hard times in Britain. She is also the author of another book that I love called Scoff, a history of food and class in Britain. And she has written books on food in both Dickens and Jane Austen, Dinner with Dickens and Dinner with Mr. Darcy. And she writes and reviews on food history for the press, edited Penguin's Great Food series and has recreated recipes from the past for television. So, Penn, your latest book, I think they're very much companion pieces, these. I think stuffed and scoff are just very good words and very British words, aren't they, really? Why did you choose the word stuffed? Thanks, Alice. It's really nice to be talking to you. Um, stuffed is, it's rather like scoff. It has a sort of double meaning. Um, and there's two different kinds of being stuffed. One is the nice bit of kind of being stuffed. So you've had Christmas lunch or Sunday Sunday lunch or dinner or whatever you call it from wherever you are in the country. And you feel kind of pleasantly stuffed. And then you are stuffed when you've run out of road, you're stuffed when there's no good options left, when you don't have any choices or all the choices you're presenting with bad ones. And it seems to me that the way we've organised ourselves in this country around our kind of food production, our kind of the way we eat it, um, is on a continuum of those two things, you know, being good stuffed, bad stuffed, um, and perhaps not quite enough in the middle uh, of kind of being sort of pleasantly fed. There's too much. Historically, there's been too much of people being, you know, stuffed because they've lost their 
their food or their jobs or their land or there's a pandemic or there's a war or a crisis. Um, and that's what I wanted to explore is who takes responsibility in those circumstances. So you have a very complicated relationship, don't we, with food, I think, in Britain in particular. Um, I've, I've spent last weekend, we had a fantastic, um, really sort of large kind of brunch uh, with all the farmers on Exmoor. And it was phenomenal. But at the same time, most of it came from the supermarket. And there was that sense now that we've slightly lost contact with the land and what we do and how we eat. And I felt that it was rather extraordinary that they went to get their cakes from the supermarket when once a sort of farmer's spread would have been all very much made from the farm. And I wanted to take you back right to the beginning, really, with your enclosures and farming. Yeah. What was Britain like at the beginning? How did people eat? Well, if you go back to pre-enclosures, so the enclosures is this long period. It started the first official enclosures about 1604. And it carried on until the last official enclosures, the early 20th century. Um, so before then, there was an assumption of some kind of kind of community uh responsibility really for food. And I'm not saying that, you know, medieval or pre-modern Britain was a, I mean, it wasn't Britain in those days, but was a great place to be. You know, there were there was slavery in Anglo-Saxon times. There was a huge amount of poverty. But there was a kind of general sense that food come from, came from somewhere locally. It came, you could see it and you had a part in its being grown. And of course, um, you have these you have examples of for example in the 1790s when that starts to break down and food is sent out of local areas to cities because city people pay more for it and the local people would riot and say no this is our food we should be able to have access to it at prices we can afford um and of course it breaks down completely in the kind of following century in when people leave the land and go and work in cities in indu industries and in kind of businesses um and so what i wanted to kind of trace was like what food f felt like and um you know what it felt like to kind of just eat a lot of beans and bread and oats for example this is you know way before we have kind of uh, you know, chocolate and coffee and things coming into the into the country, um, and and really, who yeah, who took responsibility for making sure that everybody is fed? Because there was a sense, not very perfect, that you had to take responsibility for people locally, and if they couldn't eat food, then something else had to step in, whether it was charity or church or landlords. And again, I say it was completely not perfect. I'm not trying to say that kind of pre-industrial Britain was a haven of equality and and lovely, you know, lovely eating because it wasn't. But it was a different idea about where food came from and who grew it. And pre-industrial food, do you think in some ways it was healthier? Because I think we have this rosy idea that everything we used to eat was so much better for us and that we now want to go back to beans and um, maybe not bread for some people, but actually that that sense of a sort of slightly tougher, chewier bread rather than our nice slicing yeah. sort of yeah. white bread. We've gone back again. But was it that healthy or not? Or were was there a lot of malnutrition? Did people not have enough? iron or meat or food? There was definitely a lot of malnutrition. I mean, you really took, depending on, you know, who you're talking about at what period and, you know, what kind of access they had to money and, and food. But it's really interesting because if you listen to um, 
the Zoe podcast, you know, health podcast today, for example, uh, you know, that all the stuff we've been told about now is to get variety and whole food, this idea of whole food. And so I think in the sense of pre-industrial food, particularly pre, you know, pre-1970s food, um, again, you know, with huge kind of caveats because there were terrible problems with adulteration in the, in the 19th century. People's food was whole, you know, you ate pretty much the whole bean, you ate much more of the whole grain, and there was a lot less meat for for people who couldn't afford it. And so there was problems, you know, there was definitely problems with people uh, with, you know, malnutrition and dental caries. There was a report in 1904 about public school, as in, as in state school educated uh, young men not being healthy enough to be conscripted for not not conscripted but to join up in the army for the Boer War. And that caused a huge ruckus in the early 20th century. And that's where the idea of school dinners comes from. The idea that you actually should start feeding kids because your country needs those kids to be healthy. Um, so yes, I think there's a kind of there's a sort of double answer is that yes, people who could afford it had probably much, much better diets. Too much meat, obviously, but, you know, in the summer when you had sort of fruit and vegetables, um, they would have been much more kind of whole. But but also for below a kind of certain level, there wasn't a, there wasn't a sense of um, most people. There were, you know, we, there wasn't much sense that kind of vegetables were the thing you ate because they were good for you. Vegetables were the thing you often ate because that's all there was. And I assume part of the book must have come out of the pandemic because there's that sense, isn't there, that we now have of huge seismic events that affect what you eat and how you eat and what you do. And we all went back to cooking in the kitchen and and really back to fundamentals. You trace that through the book. What were the sort of huge seismic events that happened that changed our sort of cuisine? I think that's absolutely true about the pandemic. We became very aware of it. And um, and in fact, I, I was kind of writing my book and thinking about my book through the pandemic. But the first, um, the, the kind of impetus for it was actually what you talked about right at the beginning was the enclosures. So the impetus was that the enclosures meant that villagers had some rights to graze animals, graze livestock, collect firewood, all the rest of it from land that they did not own. It wasn't owned in common on the whole. It would be owned by landlords or owned by church, by the church. But they had rights to it. They had rights of common. And that's why we are commoners. And that's why we have the House of Commons, because we are essentially descended from, you know, people who used the common. Um, and that, although it wasn't one moment, was a massive change because it meant that there's a huge proportion of people, working people, suddenly stopped having access to protein. So they couldn't graze. And it's the same in Scotland as well, when you have the clearances and you have, um, you know, people, peasants, they'd have been called, you know, living on the clans people, living on the land um, with a very kind of settled, hard going, but settled form of kind of, you know, you have this, you have milk and oats and you have you don't have. You probably don't have meat. They grew. They raised little hardy black cattle and sold them to people who could afford to eat the beef. But there was a sense that, and then there would be somebody kind of, you know, the laird of the manor. We're talking about Scotland still. You know, would be there looking after them. So the clearances and enclosures were the kind of principle. They're the heart of my book. They're the moment when, or the moments when that changes. But there are also crises such as wars. If you look at um, the way that the army is 
the, the concept of the army now is that, you know, the, the army feeds its soldiers. And that took a long time to grow because it relies on logistics. It relies on kind of all kinds of very complicated, you know, kind of food systems. Um, and I look at that moment in the kind of 19th century when that, you know, where that happened and also a particular moment in the Crimean War in the 1850s when it just failed almost completely and you had the people dying from nutrition-related diseases um, being nursed by Florence Nightingale and eventually cooked for by this amazing sort of French chef called Alexis Sawyer. So I look at those moments of kind of war and then, of course, kids in the pandemic. So I bookend, in a way, the the... The, the book with this idea that in the pandemic, do you remember the whole Marcus Rashford um, thing when he's trying to get the government to agree to feed kids in the holiday? And it seems like such a basic thing. And you think, can't we agree on this? You know, such a tiny thing. Um, and you look at, and so I was really interested in the history of thought behind school dinners and why we're so kind of, why we're so conflicted about them, why we don't go, yup, Kids, they are our future. They will be paying our pensions. They will be signing up to protect us. You know, if there's a war, we need to feed them. You know, why there's so much kind of, um, um, well, we as a, as, a as a country and a community need to feed them. Why there's a lot of pushback. And I wanted to explore this idea that on the one hand, it's easy to say it's the government's responsibility. Um, and it's also easy to say it's parents' responsibility. And I wanted to explore kind of where the responsibility really should lie um, in those kind of crisis situations. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it's actually a very political book in some ways, isn't it? In the way that Scoff was more, um, it was about class as well, actually, but it, it's not as almost polemical, actually, that there's that sense that who is going to feed Britain and how you feed them. And if we go now chronologically through it, if you talk about before the enclosures and what people eat, can you 
Can you give a sense of the best meal that you would have had before the enclosures? Would it have been the sort of carp and the swan and the, you know, how how you ate then? And then we can go through some of the history of that, of the sort of the politics of how that changed. Mm. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I start right, actually, my, I, I basically start in sort of late Anglo-Saxon England, um, because that seems to me the moment when those ideas about kind of like how a community works together and kind of how power gets sort of, you know, organised, that, that's the, those are the ideas that we've inherited today. But I do have one little sort of hop back into Neolithic times because I want to ask that question of why we even eat together at all, you know. Yeah, so the um, I was fascinated by... Um, um, I'm fascinated by the work by this, the psychologist Robin Dunbar, who, who describes why what happens when you all get together, uh, and you know you eat and you drink and you might sing and you dance and all the rest of it. And he describes what happens to your body. You 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 know you get sort of a little kind of you know physiological lift. It makes you feel good. There's a kind of physiological payback for eating together. Um, which we feel because actually there's also a real kind of downside to eating together. And this is what you see in, um, in kind of the, uh, the kind of archaeological remains of Neolithic feasts or early feasts is that um, there's obviously quite a lot of violence. You see quite a lot of skulls that have been kind of got little, you know, da damage to the left-hand side or wherever. Somebody's kind of like whacked them on the head um, and there's quite a lot of responsibility. People have to come, they have to bring their own food, they have to get themselves there to this kind of communal feasting ground. So I was quite interested in why. And I was thinking about this in the pandemic, particularly. Why would you do that? You know, it's so much easier just to sit at your own kitchen table, if you have one, and, and feed yourself. Um, so, you know, and... Um, yeah, so that was my kind of little hop back into kind of the into the Neolithic feasts, which should all be about roast meat, roast pork, maybe some early beer. We don't know, but there's a chance barley will just barley will just turn itself into beer if it gets half the chance, and it might have it might well have done sort of uh, you know for four thousand two hundred years BC or five thousand years BC, which is maybe why um, they were hitting yeah. each other over the heads to a certain extent. Yes, exactly, exactly, and that's gone on for. Yeah, for centuries. And that has got that has carried on for centuries. And you know, this is why um and it's carried on in Britain for centuries. You see that there's a there's a very funny little detail in the Bayer tapestry when you see the Normans being shown feasting before the Battle of Hastings, and they're all just eating meat. You can see the meat being hung up over the fire. And then you can see the Anglo Saxons who are all just drinking. No food in sight. They just had these wonderful kind of huge drinking horns. And that idea of um, a British kind of drinking culture seems to have very, very kind of early roots. Um, and but it also this was also part of a kind of there was a hospitality culture uh, with very early kind of med uh, medieval roots. Um, and I look at one moment when that probably changes because the plague in the 14th century means people just don't really want to let. Uh, strangers into their houses because they might bring the plague, but they might bring these very seditious ideas about equality and rights to other people's food, and they certainly don't want that either. Um, and so, yes, you're asking about how kind of people's food changes. So, I mean, so in some ways, kind of 
that idea of sort of status in food hasn't changed that much. You know, we have this idea that wine is kind of middle class or or for the you know, or for the you know the heads of houses, or the, the the ecclesiastical abbots and heads of houses, and then the beer would be for the the kind of lower monk, beer or water or whatever for the kind of low you know lower visitors eating with the lower monks, with, you know, in medieval times, and so those ideas kind of have move all the way through the period. But but I think in in some ways the key thing for us is always bread. And since medieval, since medieval times, the focus has been so much on bread and beer and how you make sure that everybody always has access to bread has been a kind of key part of legislation um, for people because bread is, it's not the easiest thing to produce. It's actually quite complex. It's quite difficult. It requires the whole community to get on board with it, to, you know, thresh it grind it, grind the flour, produce the mill, bake it in ovens when you might not have an oven in your house. And so in some ways, bread is the ideal thing uh, to control communities because communities need to get together to produce it. Bread was definitely the main staple of the medieval diet and um, or the one that everybody aspired to. And actually probably the, an easier, because you needed an oven and most people wouldn't have had ovens and an easier thing to eat would be a kind of mess, like we'd call it now a potage, which would be grains and vegetables, onions, whatever you had around. And it was definitely seen as kind of lower class, lower quality. Bread was what everybody wanted and white, and increasingly white bread. And what was really interesting is that the longest running piece of food legislation ever, bit nerdy this, but starts in about 1256. And it's called the Assizes of Bread. And the Assizes were kind of county courts. And it meant that everybody got together and said, this is how much um, it, a, a loaf of bread would always cost a penny. You'd, get, you'd always be able to get a penny loaf. And the assizes would get together and say, this is how big it would be. So if the price of grain went down, then you'd have a bigger loaf. If the price of grain went up, you'd have a smaller loaf. And it did two really interesting things. It kept everybody quiet. It kept everybody happy. They knew that if you had a penny, you could afford to eat. You could afford to eat something. But what it also did is it moved the, the kind of spotlight about who's kind of making food available to everybody away from the landowners and the people, the farmers and the people who are growing the corn onto um, the bakers and, some, and partly the millers. And so the bakers become these people who have to sort of show, you know, that they're adhering to this, um, to this legislation. They had all these very complicated tables to tell them how big or small their loaf could be. And that worked for centuries. But I think what we've got out of that is this sense that the bakers, and we don't really have many bakers anymore, but we do have supermarkets. We've got from that this sense that retailers are the people who are responsible for getting our food to us. Uh, and obviously, there are exceptions. The Second World War is a major exception, very successful uh, government intervention in kind of food and access to food and also quality of food. But on the whole, if you look back in the pandemic, you know, if there was no, or recently when there was no, not enough fruit and veg because there'd been terrible weather in Europe, um, the idea is that the retailer decides who gets what, you know, decide, decides on the rationing, decides how that's going to work, decides on the prices um, and, you know, fixes. There's this 
strange kind of system that British supermarkets have is that they very early on fix these long contracts with their suppliers. And so they know what the price is going to be. There's no space for it to kind of go up and down. And so I think that, and we feel comfortable with it as consumers. We think, oh yeah, that's normal. That's what happens. But I think it does have a very long, very specific history. And I don't think it's quite the same in other countries. Yes. And actually in many ways, it doesn't work to our advantage, does it? Because what happens is we've confused really our producers um, with our um, you know, consumers have, have, have muddled that up, I think, with the people who are actually providing the food. And then you get this sense, I think, from the farming community that they're not actually, they're providing all this food and they're not actually able to say what they've done or how they've done it. And I, we go back again now to wanting more of that, you know, home-produced food. And can you talk about really that? Because it's quite political now, I think, that the supermarkets can be blamed, I think, for quite a lot now probably, can't they? Well, the supermarkets put huge um, expectations on farmers to produce food, kind of perfect food, kind of almost Frankensteinian kind of like weird food. So if you look at strawberries, for example, Strawberries, because of pressure from the supermarkets, because they sell so well, you know, in the summer. Sometimes, many supermarkets sell more strawberries than any other product over the summer. More than bread, more than milk. It's extraordinary. So, if you look at strawberries, they have been under pressure from the supermarkets. The strawberry growers have managed to make a near kind of perfect berry that doesn't squash, that that manages to ripen, that ripens early. Um, you know, that stays late, that is sweet, you know, is soft, it's perfect for us. And that was thought to be almost impossible when people started kind of strawberry uh, growing. And so, which is great, we have lovely berries. Um, I mean, with the strawberry thing, I find it quite extraordinary because every every Wimbledon, you the, super, the um, press starts to kind of go, what's the best strawberry? And they don't say it's this breed or this breed or this breed. They say it's this supermarket or this supermarket or this supermarket, as though supermarkets kind of bred them, um, which is just an, a, a neat image for how kind of dependent we are on supermarkets for our food and how we identify them with our food. But I think really the point I'm, I, I guess is, I'm trying to make is that growers are so squashed by them and you have they have to produce cheaper and cheaper and cheaper food and what about the people growing the food you know if they're not being paid well to produce food um how can they afford to eat well and this is not just a question for today this is a question that has been bedeviling us since the early 19th century you know where you have this very definite sense that people who are in those days, we'd call them agricultural labourers, um, and the farmers and the landowners just wanted them to be available for totally cheap labour, uh, even if they could hardly afford to kind of look after their families themselves, because the farmers wanted to sell, you know, as much grain as possible. And then you get this ridiculous situation with the Corn Laws in the early nineteenth century, when uh, we start as a nation start to get threatened by cheap imported grain. And for 30 years or so, there were tariffs to make that grain more expensive because it didn't suit landowners and farm, big farmers to be undercut by imported grain. So these questions of how you kind of square that circle of paying people to produce food and then paying them to produce food that everybody can eat. And then also now the question of 
we really are facing is paying people to produce food that is not going to kind of end up killing us because ultra processed food is, you know, according to the scientists, is so bad for us. Um, it's a very long running question, really. And um, yes, and you have to, at some stage, you, and I think it's beginning to happen now, you have to go, well, okay, who's going to take responsibility for finding the answer in such a complex food system? And you're very good on the sort of specialisation of farmers. That's what's happened, isn't it? Is that actually the only way you could sell to the supermarkets and make it work was to specialise and you know, 200 years ago, you could have gone to your farm and got your eggs and you could have got your milk and 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 you talk about that. And, and there is a sense now that the only way you're ever going to make any money as a farmer is if you just really specialise in one product. And how farming has changed, do you think that that's really at the heart of this book as, as well? You know, how do you feel that's happened? Do you think that we've lost trust in our farmers in a way and that we that we've lost that link to the land with them? I think we have. If you look at, if you compare two things now, that, that it's often said that the problem with kids is that they don't know where their food comes from. So it's often, you know, and I have a lovely example of a friend of mine who is a, is a trainee probation officer. This is many, many years ago. Took some young kids from Bristol to a farm and they'd never been to a, a, out of the city before. And one of them points to a sheep and says, look, cloud dogs. Um, and it's an example of how kind of distant, you know, kids are from farms. And, you know, that's that's often said, and I'm sure that's absolutely true. But I also think in Westminster, we have a huge degree of distance from farms and farmers and people who actually make their own food. You know, one of the things I ended up realising at the end of this book is that people who make food, cooks, chefs, whatever you want to call them, really understand on the whole, understand and respect food, I came away with a much, a really much higher kind of idea, better rather idea of how important that kind of passion for food is, because you've got to have somebody in society who's defending it for everybody. And just going back to this idea of Westminster, I think that Westminster in some ways today is an area of, you know, where people believe in cloud dogs. They don't know, they don't go to farmers they don't walk around them, you know, and um, and they and they probably don't make much food for themselves or their families at home, and um, and so I think that's there's a big disconnect all the way up the food chain. And, and if you look back in the, again, if you go back to the sort of 18th or 19th century, a lot of people, and this again, I'm not proposing this as a, we should be returning to this, but a lot of people in West in Parliament were landowners. They had farms themselves. They knew about farms. They understood when you had bad weather, you had scarcity, and that would impact the whole, you know, of the food chain. And they understood it. And I think there's a lack of that kind of granular understanding and interest that uh, is is really relevant. And so it, we just we just um, that's what one of the pre reasons is we kind of subcontract all that thinking to retail, to supermarkets and to industrial food producers who think about food in a very different way. They think about food, how to produce the most food most cheaply, and that doesn't as a whole serve as well. I mean, that, that's the yeah. interesting thing, isn't it? It becomes so economic. And I think for a long time, we lost the idea of the health of the nation and of feeding the that's, nation. It was all about profit. Yeah. And 
I mean, then moving on, it really is the industrial revolution that that occurred with as well, because you've got the sense that food was being bought in and you explain that. And um, and you got more varied food, didn't you? So that, that you began to get different sorts of food coming in. Yes, I mean we've had it. You know we've been we've been dependent on food imports for for hundreds of years, and you know it's varied over the twentieth century. It was it was really high before the first world war. It was like sixty sixty percent of our food was imported, and then clearly that makes us incredibly food insecure as a nation. Um, and after the second world war, a lot of the kind of pressure on farmers to produce more was because of that recognition that we were very insecure, food insecure as a nation. That's not a good place to be. I think it is fascinating that you do and you bring in, you know, it's the variety of cheese and, you know, and and the, it, it's being able to shop around and decide what you want. You're not getting the same monotonous diet, but at the same time, you yes, lose exactly. something in that, that you're, yeah. you lose that connection as you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'll just pick up and I'll just say um yeah so I'll talk about sort of food insecurity and imports okay so what imports have given us is a huge amount of variety we can eat almost anything um at any time um what industrial food has given us is something that looks like variety but actually isn't it's dependent on Wheat is dependent on a few very, very small food, you know, narrow food crops, you know, wheat, particularly wheat, sugar in its various forms um, and a few other, you know, grains and all the rest of it. Um, and though, so if if something happened to the kind of the world's wheat, for example, we'd be stuffed, you know, you know, if it all kind of succumbed to a um, succumbed to some blight or something like potatoes in Ireland did in the 1840s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, exactly. And so we do have, you know, we do have imported variety and we're very lucky, you know, we have a huge amount of variety, but there is a cost to it. You know, it has made us more food insecure as a nation and it has also taken us a little bit further away from the understanding those ideas about food and health that you you started asking me about and i think actually that dissociation between the idea that what you eat is is your health is dependent on what you eat which was a sort of mantra you know of kind of medicine right up to the present day you know you could go through the health service and never be advised about diet for example um, and I know that might be changing a tiny bit now, maybe not quite enough. But um, that dissociation between food and health starts to happen in about the, I'd say probably about the 16th century, when people start going, no, well, you know, let's eat, let's grow turnips because turnips are going to produce enough food for animals and the animals are going to kind of make us, you know, we're going to then have meat and we're going to, that's going to make us rich as a nation. And so this idea of, food being an individual thing, something you ate for your own personal health, starts to change and it starts to become, you know, what's good for the kind of nation's health, what's good for us as a kind of empire, what's good for us as a kind of colonising power. Um, and that obviously, you know, 
it's much more about economy and less about the individual. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's more of that discussion in a special extended edit waiting for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and get it all in one go or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.